Well, good morning, Living Church. Good morning, Awake Church. Did you get some sleep last night? If you thought this was the 8.30 service, welcome. We're glad you're here. Good to have you here. Say, man, it is exciting to live among you, and uh, I'm always, uh, I always enjoy my brothers. Uh, but one of the reasons it makes it exciting is we never know what you're going to do. So what I'd like you to do is make a decision during this hour to go out these doors after the service, go to the table, sign up for the, the men's Armor Up Advance. We'd like to have you there. You can be called Spartacus. You can be called anything. Uh, we want to have you there. We need to know you're coming because we need to know how many sports cars we're going to give away in the raffle. So would you sign up today? We need to know, guys. Uh, make a decision. Let us know that you're coming. Well, when I was a be- long ago in the days of competition, I had two kinds of coaches. Uh, the first one I met in high school. And this coach was a, a grumpy old guy. And uh, his whole phrase was pride and desire and, uh, you know, you got to hurt. And, and, and he made it clear when we came out for the track team that this was his track team. And, uh, and he made it clear to us who are distance runners that he thought we were a bunch of slackers and lazy people. And he brought, he brought uh, memories of old from people who learned how to suffer under his coaching and had reached some degree of success. And he thought it was his mission to show us every day uh, uh, to the point of exhaustion that, that we needed him. And he would prod us. He would call us names. He would yell at us while we were running laps. He would do all these things. And, and it was very clear that he thought this was his team. And he actually achieved quite a bit with us. He, he got us to do a lot of things. But something happened at the end of the season. All of us stopped running. We reverted back to our former behavior. After all, it was his job to motivate us, and when his voice was gone, we didn't have any more motivation. Well, I went to college, and I met a different coach, and uh, he was an Olympian, and and just his stature kind of put us in awe. He gathered us together as a cross-country team, and And he said, uh, how many of you guys were number one in your high school? And, you know, kind of all the hands went up. And he said, you know, I thought that was true. And he said, you know what it's like to win. You know what it takes to win. I know that you have some gifting. And he said, my job is to help you achieve what you're capable of and to keep you from injuring yourself along the way. And what we did for him was we ran hard, but it was our team. He said, I believe you're, ba- you're going to be able to compete at a national level. We believed that. And when the season came to an end, we ran all through Christmas vacation. And when we ran through track season and came to the summer, we ran even though we got summer jobs. And we came back, and we were constantly in training because we were being pulled by the vision and the purpose and the identity that he allowed us to have. What a difference that is. There's the the push of the enforcer, but there's the pull of the one who's the enabler. And this has some real parallels for our spiritual life. Whether you're talking about your diet, you know, if it's somebody else's diet for you, how does that work? Is that working for you? Uh, whether it has to do with your exercise program or whether it has to do with your spiritual disciplines. This has some direct application to our spiritual lives. Because in our spiritual lives, we have both the push of the law 
and the pull of the Holy Spirit. We'll always have both. But sadly, I think many believers, maybe it's because of dysfunctional families that have always defined them by their mistakes. Maybe it's because of abusive spiritual environments or, or uh, legalistic churches. Many believers have never experienced the second half of that coaching, which is to pull you into who you really are and can be. This positive direction. And that's what we want to talk about today. And the reason that it happens to us is because either we're so overwhelmed by the buzzers and the penalty flags and the, the places that we've made mistakes, or we don't really know who we are. We don't really know what we're made to do. Or we don't believe it, in fact, that it could be true. So today we want to turn to Galatians chapter 3 and talk about the new you. Who is the new you? What is the new you? What does that look like? Galatians chapter 3, we're starting in verse 26, but we're not ready yet to read these words until we contextualize this a little bit. Remember, Paul has been talking about this. Let's recall. He says, first of all, you're not a stepchild in the kingdom of God if you're a Gentile and not a Hebrew. He says, secondly, you are not a second-class citizen because you have solely believed in the gospel and haven't tacked on a whole bunch of law. Paul also teaches us in this context that you are not suspect because you're not Jewish, but instead you are a Gentile or a Greek or whatever other nationality. So now we want to look at chapter 3, verse 26, and read these words. Ready, ready to read these words. Listen to these words. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. We want to camp on that right now. We want to say, first of all, what Paul is saying about the new you is that in Christ, I join a new community. Actually, I didn't get that part of the outline quite right. Outlines go out on Friday morning. The sermon comes on Sunday morning, and there's some space in between. What I should have said is this. In Christ, I join a new people. It's not just joining a club or a segment. It's, it's a whole new people. That's what Peter calls us. He said, once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Not defined by your race. You're defined by who you belong to. Look what it says. It says you are all sons of God. There's a new you. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, a person who never existed before is born. That's what it means to be born again. Something fundamental, something essential, something at the molecular level changed about you spiritually, and you are not the same. This is a theological truth. It's a spiritual truth. The reborn you is a new you. Now, relax a little bit here. This is not male domination. This is not Paul's chauvinistic tin ear to gender. This is not gender insensitive. Paul says the new you is identified with the real son. So both male and female, don't take this as a, as a gender neutering thing, both male and female are sons of God like the real son of God. Look at chapter 4, we haven't read it yet, but 
Look at chapter 4, verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, capital S. Look at verse 6. It says, because you are sons, small s, God sent the spirit of his son, capital S. See what Paul is doing here? He's saying, all male and female, your new people group is the people group of sonship. That's how you define yourself. With all the privileges of Jesus Christ accruing to you who are adopted by the Father in his name. Wow, that's, there's a huge earthquake that Paul is speaking about here. In chapter 3, uh, Paul says we're children of Abraham. Now he amplifies that. He climaxes that by saying you're not only children of Abraham, you're sons of God. And he uses the term sons of God five times in this context. So the regal title for Jesus talks about his standing and his position before God, and that same standing and position before God is your position before God. The Son of God, you are a Son of God. Let's go back to the my pad here, the touch screen. This is the line that represents eternity, heaven, and this is the line that represents your physical life, and so here you are on the earth, and you are living your linear, sequential life. And through the, the wooing of the Holy Spirit, through the hearing of the gospel, through the invitation, the persuasion, the drawing, the mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit, you see Jesus and you invite him to be the Savior and Lord of your life. When that transaction happens, when that miracle takes place, you immediately have a new position in heaven. The scripture says your position, your standing before God is now as a son of God. You have a legitimate right to claim the inheritance of the son. Theologically, we call this justification. You have the standing just as if you had never sinned. And this eternal life goes on into the future. It is unending. That is your standing before God. That's what Paul is talking about here. In Christ, I join a new people. That's who I am. It's my standing. Now, it says here also, we're clothed in Christ. In verse 27, for all of you were, who were baptized into Christ have been clothed yourselves with Christ. Now, I think Paul is talking about baptism in two ways. The one, number one, <clears throat> the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is that immersion. It's that shower. It's that, that complete uh, surrounding of you with the Holy Spirit that makes you a new one, a, a Christ one, a reborn person. The baptism of the Holy Spirit and conversion to Christ are simultaneous. They happen. It's the, it's the spiritual, it's the, it's the Godward and the human side of the same event. You are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ. That's one of the ways that Paul is using this. The second way is I think he's causing them to recall their own personal visible baptism, just as we've seen here in our baptistry. People who are Christ followers make it visible in the community. And in both ways, people become visible Christians. 
And Paul is saying here, when someone is baptized, they, they take off their old clothes, they put on a baptismal robe, and they, are, they become Christ followers. And in many places in the New Testament, it says, you put off the old and you put on the new. It's a very common metaphor in Scripture. And this is what Paul is saying. You make yourself known as a Christ follower. Once the Holy Spirit has worked in you, you make yourself known and you become clothed with Christ. You know, we don't wear many uniforms in our, our community, but if you put on the uniform of a flight attendant and you're walking through the airport, you are consciously aware that you're representing something more than yourself. You're representing the vision, the company, the, the, the service, even the ministry of what you're supposed to do. You have a, a different mentality when you wear the clothing that identifies you. And so it is with Christ. How do you perceive yourself? Now, perception doesn't make it so, but the tragedy is so many believers don't perceive what is actually real, and so they don't actually think it's so. I remember, remember one time we had a, a time of worship here, and, and a brother had come and he'd written some songs, and he sang them for us, and they really touched my heart. And I met him out here in the commons later as he was getting ready to go. He's all, all packed up with his kids and his winter coat on. And, and I just went to him and I said, I want to thank you for your songs. And, and he said, well, I just, you know, I don't, I really, uh, that really wasn't very good. And I grabbed him by the shoulders, and I looked him in the eye, and I said, brother, you are a minstrel. You are a songwriter. And what I wanted to do to him was to redefine his hangdog definition of himself. Uh, many of you know that I'm living with an author these days. <laughs> now, she's not an author because the book just recently came out. And, um, but, you know, the book has been in process for, for many years, and I watched Joanne walk through this, and there were many days when she labored over a paragraph or a page. And I would come home and I'd say, how'd it go today? And she'd go, uh, no, nothing much really happened here. And I simply kept saying to her, you, you are an author. That's who you are. And that's not make-believe. That isn't just shining the apple. Who we believe ourselves to be and what the Bible tells us we are has everything to do with how we're going to live. So we have this diagram here. You've seen it before. <clears throat> if this is who we are for eternity, what about this life? And the scripture says, as we walk with Christ, we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, the scripture says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is the trajectory that the Spirit of God has us on. Now, it might be a little less linear than that. It might be a little wobbly. But theologians call this progressive sanctification. Now, there is a push to this from the law. Every believer is never going to be away from the law. But there's a pull to this from Christ and from the Holy Spirit pulling us into what God has made us, which is the new you. So this is our condition on earth, which 
as we clothe ourselves in Christ day by day, decision by decision, the next right thing after the next right thing, it's not just the law giving us a penalty flag all the time, it's the Holy Spirit pulling us into who we really are. In Christ, I join a brand new people. I'm not a Swede or a Norwegian or a German or Ugandan or a Ghanaian. I'm not Spanish, I'm not Japanese, I'm not Chinese. I am a son. And that puts the axe to the root of all racism, but it also empowers all the purpose and ministry, community and family that God wants for us. So Paul drives it deeper. The second point here is that in Christ, I own a new identity. Read verses 28 and 29 with me. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is talking about the new identity, and notice what Paul is doing. The three biggest contrasts he can think of. He's thinking about the, the racial contrast, the class contrast, and the gender contrast. Paul says, you're neither Jew or Greek, you're neither slave nor free, and you're neither male nor female. You are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. You see, none of the old qualifiers and none of the old disqualifiers now apply. If you belong to Christ, regardless of your ethnicity, your economy, or your biology, you are an heir of Christ Jesus. By the way, I'm going to return to verse 28 next week and, and talk about a dangerous topic. So, and it's the whole issue of, of the role of women in the life and ministry of the church because this is a key verse there. So, uh, come. I'll, I'll light myself on fire and you can watch what we do there. <laughs> many, many people in our culture are in identity crises. Maybe you are. You know, I don't have any kids at home anymore. What do I do? Or I used to have a career. Now I'm home with a preverbal preschooler. I used to have this level of job and now I'm underemployed. Peyton Manning used to play for the Colts. Now what am I going to do? We have all kinds of ways that we identify ourselves, and then when those categories are broken, who are we really? And Paul is saying, none of the old categories matter anymore. What matters is that you are all sons of God. The old labels don't fit, and the question is, do you believe who you are? That you are an heir. You're a son. That you're free. Thinking this doesn't make it so, but it is so. And sadly, many Christians don't think it. In Christ, I own a new identity. The old divisions are gone, and a new oneness has come. What does it say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. This is what we desire. This is what we want to look at as we look at what is the transformative power to make us like Christ. Is it just trying to avoid the mistakes of the law? Is it just getting kicked from the behind on all the things we do wrong? Or is there a pull to it? 
that draws us with power into who we really are. You know, the, the country has been captivated by the story of Jeremy Lin. Uh, maybe you know Jeremy Lin. He's a point guard for the New York Knicks, but he didn't start out that way. He played at Harvard, and then he played some minor league ball, and he got cut by a couple of NBA teams and got called up by the Knicks when a couple of their uh, players were out injured. And when Jeremy Lin got this opportunity, he led them on like an eight-game winning streak, and his level of play has just escalated for the last two months. But the interesting thing is, it was always in him. He, he isn't a different person. He doesn't have a different body. He doesn't really have different skills. It was always there. Maybe he didn't believe it, or other people didn't believe it, but he's playing at a whole different level today. And this is part of what we're talking about when we talk about the transformative power of a new identity. So I want you to turn with me to, to Romans chapter 6, it's, which is another place that Paul talks about this. There are many subjects in Romans chapter 6. We're eager to get to them, but I want to just selectively point out how Paul talks about my identity and your identity in Romans chapter 6, just like he talks about it in Galatians chapter 3. I want to read the first four verses of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Well, that's a torrent of truth, and let me just pick through it a little bit to, to select some things amongst all of the other things that are true about this passage. First of all, notice that Paul talks again about baptism. He says, when you were baptized into Christ, not just your physical baptism in a church, when you were baptized by the Spirit of God, you died, your old life was crucified. Notice the tense of it. It happened just as Christ died once. You died once. And you are raised to life just as he was raised to life to live a new life. You want to jot this reference down and you want to study it if you're wrestling with your spiritual identity. Romans chapter 6, the first 11 verses is key. Just as Christ was raised from the dead, it says we too have this same new life. And it's not just positional it's actual. There's power in it. There's identity in this new life. The question is, am I living this new life? Do I understand what it is? Do you know who you are as a Christian? Many people have inadequate definitions of what a Christian is. For example, Christians aren't perfect, we're just forgiven. Or a Christ follower is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Or I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Now all those things are true. The problem is they're partial. You mean, is being a Christ follower just having something taken away from me? Is it subtraction? Or is it transformation? You know, I drive a 97 Volvo. Uh, it's got a lot of miles on it, still, still ticking. This car has about three horsepower. 
it works. It gets us where we need to go. And, but the amusing thing about this Volvo is it has something on it that makes me look really cool when I drive it. 97 Volvo, four-door sedan, has a spoiler on the trunk lid. <laughs> a vestige of the racing community. And they put this on the trunk deck of my Volvo, and I look really sporty when I drive it. But what a ridiculous thing. If I could get it up to 150 miles an hour, maybe the spoiler would work and have some function, but I'm about 100 miles shy of that goal. Here's a vestige from the racing community that has no practical value except image on that car. Friends, I wonder how many of us feel like I have this vestige of a wing on my back. I've got this vestige of of Christ that I carry around but it has no practical value for me. I'm a person who calls himself a Christ one because I have a set of new beliefs and I have a cross around my neck and I have a Bible in my library. And you may be a true Christ follower, but do you live as if this is just a vestige that one day, someday, maybe up here, it'll be useful? Or do you believe that at every single cell of your spiritual life, you are a different person? Well, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying you are a totally new person. In Romans chapter 6, verse 1, they res- he wrestles with this difficulty. And every Christian of every generation has wrestled with the implications of grace and sin. Grace and obedience. And many of you have written to me. Some of you have talked with me about that. Uh, Pastor, you're talking so much about grace, 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 nothing but grace. Where's the obedience? Where's the discipleship? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. And here's the, the logical but wrong conclusion that Paul tackles. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Here's the reasoning. If I'm loved and accepted just for who I am without any performance, if I'm a child of God despite my sin, then what difference does sin make? Why don't I just sin and confess and sin and confess and sin and confess and just continue to live the way I want to live? The reasoning goes even more than that. People in Paul's day and even in our day, some are saying, listen, if the more we sin, the more God's grace is magnified then why don't we bring him glory by living in depravity and having spectacular repentances? And that'll bring God glory. It'll magnify his grace. And Paul's answer is predictable. He says, by no means. God forbid. But why does he say that? Notice, he doesn't say in Romans chapter 6, well, that would be an embarrassment to the church. Or it would be a shame on Jesus Christ, or shame on you, or that would be a terrible witness, or that would harm you. Though all of those are true, Paul doesn't say that. What does Paul say should keep us from sinning? He says in chapter 6, verse 2, we died to sin. In other words, you have a new nature here on earth. There's a new you on earth, and it is incompatible with the poison and pollution of sin. You may sin, but that is not the true you, and you, the true you, the new you, will be miserable in that. 
And the law points it out, but the Holy Spirit pulls us toward that obedience. This is the power of the transformed life that we recognize we died to sin and sinning is incompatible. And if we really want life in the new life, we walk with God. Look what it says in verse 11 of Romans chapter 6. I hope you'll jot this down and study it much later. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And here's some really life-altering words in Romans chapter 6, starting with verse 5. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. There's much there that we can't delve into. I just want you to notice that the old self was crucified. And there's a new self. It feeds on obedience. It feeds on the satisfaction. It feeds on the life. It feeds on the Holy Spirit. And whenever we walk toward that, we say, oh, yes, that is life. And these old habits, these old ways are only broken when we recognize we have a new identity in Christ. Many people sadly feel that in order to follow Christ, they have to deny their essential identity. I have to do what I hate in order to follow Him. I have to do what doesn't make any sense to follow Him. What wrong thinking that is. What the Scripture is saying, no, you become who you are in obedience. And you'll know the joy. You'll know the satisfaction. You will feel the progress, and God will bless you and give you his word as you go. Well, this is what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3 and what he's saying in Romans chapter 6. I am most myself, I am most alive, I am most the child of Abraham when I am pulled toward this new identity in Jesus Christ. Well, finally, let's look at the third aspect of this. Paul says that in Christ I enjoy a new liberty. I have a new, I'm a new people. I'm a part of a new people. I own a new identity, and I enjoy a new liberty. Let me just read the first seven verses here of chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You know, we've been, uh, we have this logo on the, on the wall here of a bird in a cage. Maybe you've watched the animated version on the, on the intro video. The reason we did that was that Paul is talking to people who have been put in a cage of legalism. And they've been put in a cage where all they're being told is what they're doing wrong. The law, that's its function. But if you notice that what we've done is we've opened the door to the cage. 
as Paul is opening the door to the cage. And the question is, will you, when you're given the freedom to leave the cage of performance, will you leave it and fly the way you should? Will the new you be released? And will you embrace that? Scripture says we're free from slavery. And unless you know who you are, unless you know that you're a son of God, you will allow the guardians to take away your freedom. They won't allow you to be the son of God. But notice what has happened in chapter 4, verse 4. This is huge. It says the father has decided. It's time now. I'm going to determine the time. And in all of history, he said at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. There's a ton of theology here. It was the perfect time in history, fulfilling all the prophecies of Jesus. Here's humanity and deity wrapped up in one united person. He lived under the law. He fulfilled the law. He did it all. And God is saying, I determined it's time. All the sons of God should inherit what they deserve, what I've set aside for them. The guardians are no longer in charge. This is what Paul is saying in chapter 4, verse 4. And again, it's nothing I did. It's something he instituted. And what he wants us to have is to enjoy the full rights and privileges of a child of God, a son of God. And I love this verse, as I'm sure you do. It says, because you are sons, verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Paul uses this term, Abba, Father, two times, one in Romans chapter 8, here in Galatians chapter 4, and both times, it is solely because of the work of the Holy Spirit that we cry out to the Father, Abba, Dad, Papa. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we often think about miracles, tongues, gifting, power, all those kind of things. And they're all true. But the primary role of the Holy Spirit is for him to validate and to deepen our understanding that God is really our Father. So, so can you say it? Under the Holy Spirit's prompting, can you say it? It's, it's no longer Mr. God. It's no longer Most High or Adonai or Lord of Hosts, and those are all great titles. No, it's His name. In fact, it's more than a name. It's an appellation of closeness and intimacy and trust and loyalty. It says, Dad, you're my Father. We will never see transformation in our lives until we know the Father is for us, not against us. And Jesus, the Son of God, prayed to the Father and he said to the Father, Abba, Father, and we are to imitate him as sons of God, adoptive sons of God. We have the right and privilege to call him Abba. We imitate Jesus in the rights as sons. Joanne and I were uh, privileged to speak yesterday at a workshop here under the title of uh, The Spiritually Connected Family. We talked about, some, about parenting, <laughs> and uh, we were able to revisit a, a lot of things. And, and by the way, we certainly didn't do it perfectly, and nobody does. But we were able to revisit that, and, and it brought back a lot of memories of our active parenting days. 
And one of the things we did with our daughters when they were very small was we would take their faces in our hands and squeeze their chubby cheeks until their lips puckered. And we'd look them in the eye and we would say, Jill and Shelly, I love you and I will never, ever stop loving you. Now, when they were two or three years old, we didn't know what was going to come when they were 13 through 18. We didn't know what they would do in school. We didn't know how they'd perform at piano. We didn't know whether they would always obey us. We knew they had a sin nature at that point, you know. (laughs) But what we wanted to do was to instill in them, no matter what you do, you need to know who you are. You need to know that you are our children. You belong to us. You carry our name. There's a privilege in that. Yes, there's an expectation in that, but it is a pull toward who you can become, all because you know who you are. Do you know who you are? Paul is saying none of the old qualifiers matter. None of the old disqualifiers matter. What defines you is you are a son. You're an heir. You have an inheritance. And there's power in that. Transformative power. Let's pray together and ask the Holy Spirit to apply just that one thing that moves you toward the heart of God. Father, we bow before you today and humbly ask that by the Holy Spirit's illumination, you would take the word of God as mediated through the preaching of the word of God and apply it to our hearts in particular ways, each one of us in a particular way, so that, Lord, we would not just be chased by the push of the law, but that we would be invited and eager to be pulled into the power of the new life you've given. May this, Lord, be a renewing, transforming teaching that you apply to each one of us, we pray in Jesus' name.